Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Thank you so much for listening in, everybody. I decided to title this episode A Roadmap for Anthroposophy because that's really what it is. In this episode, we're breaking down what anthroposophy is in simple terms and then laying out all the things that fall under the umbrella of anthroposophy. I know that umbrella term I referenced a lot in the trailer for this season, but I think it really helps to illustrate how these things are all related. This episode also serves as another trailer in a way because we're touching on many of the topics that I'll be discussing in this whole season. Be sure to listen through this whole episode because after we discuss anthroposophy, my guest, Dr. Douglas Gerwin, will be sharing some of his findings from his survey of Waldorf graduates, published in a book this week actually. That book is titled Into the World, How Waldorf Graduates Fare After High School. A link to that book, more on my guest, Dr. Douglas Gerwin, and his work, as well as additional resources for this episode can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash roadmap for anthroposophy. Quickly, I cannot thank enough the lovely Palumba for supporting this episode. Many of you know Palumba is my absolute favorite shop for Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies. Palumba was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S., Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton, along with other natural materials. As you've heard me mention before, I have a seriously high standard for any company I want to share with you as a Waldorview podcast supporter. With Palumba, it was an easy choice. I actually reached out to them to see if they'd be interested in collaborating. Their commitment to quality is second to none. Almost all of their products are made by them in Michigan. A handful of items then come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. You can check out Palumba at palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. You can also check out a list of my absolute favorite Waldorf toys at waldorfy.com forward slash favorite toys. And that's how we spell favorite in the U.S. Now, let me introduce you to my incredible guest, Dr. Douglas Gerwin. Dr. Douglas Gerwin is executive director of the Center for Anthroposophy in Wilton, New Hampshire, where he oversees adult education programs, including the preparation of Waldorf high school teachers. Douglas has himself taught history, literature, German, music, and life science at the Waldorf high school level since 1983. Prior to that time, he taught child development and other courses to both graduates and undergraduates at the University of Dallas, where he received his doctorate in physiology and literature in 1984. Before entering the teaching profession, Dr. Gerwin served as a foreign correspondent, editor, and radio broadcaster for Reuters News Agency in Europe from 1972 to 1978. In all, Dr. Gerwin is co-author or editor of 10 books on Waldorf education, including a collection of articles, including some of his own, entitled Trailing Clouds of Glory, Essays on Sexuality, and the Education of Youth in Waldorf Schools. His most recent publication is as co-author of the book Into the World, How Waldorf Graduates Fare After High School, a comprehensive survey covering the last quarter century of Waldorf alumni. At present, Dr. Gerwin resides on the outskirts of Amherst, Massachusetts with his wife, Connie, a Waldorf high school teacher of mathematics. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Douglas. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a while, so I'm very excited. So let's get into the first question that I have for you, which is 
what is anthroposophy? I'm wondering if you can break that down in the simplest terms possible for the audience. Well, there might be a simple answer and a slightly less simple answer. And the simplest is to say that anthroposophy, akin, say, to, let's say, philosophy, is essentially a discipline or a path or an approach to knowledge. It's a way of looking at the world, not through in terms of content, but simply in terms of glasses. That is to say, a certain kind of approach. That's the simplest way to put it. To say slightly more complicated, it's an unusual word, which was borrowed then by Rudolf Steiner, who started this whole approach to knowledge. And if you look at the word anthroposophy, then it really breaks down into two words. The first one is anthropos, which is a Greek word, as you may know, for the human being. And then the second word, sophia, like in philosophy, sophia, which is another Greek word, and that means wisdom. So put those two together and you have the idea that anthroposophy is basically the study of the wisdom of the human being or the wisdom that's inbuilt into the human being, even frankly into the human body. And to take that a bit further then, if you begin to study the wisdom inherent in the human being, this is a way of linking then the human being on earth to let's say the world of spirit or the world of the logos sometimes called uh, or the world of spirituality as a way of saying then that anthroposophy is the way of linking the human being on earth to its spiritual origins. That's very interesting. I feel like from my understanding, and I guess that's because I experienced being a Waldorf student and that's my I guess the gateway for me to anthroposophy and my only basic understanding of it is more the connection of all of these other things in the world together. And I hadn't really thought of it as the human being's relation to itself and the spiritual world, I guess. I think of biodynamic farming and Waldorf education, which are all of these approaches to other things and not an approach to the study of ourselves, I guess. Right. And you could say in a way that all of these aspects you mentioned, like education and farming and other areas we'll talk about, uh, these are all kinds of consequences or results of this anthroposophical study, this anthroposophical work. But it's interesting that all of these specific or concrete expressions of anthroposophical work, like education and so on, that's a way of saying that all of these things are derivative from the study of the human being itself. In other words, if you really look into what a human being is, how it is formed, how it grows, how it evolves, then you begin to realize that all the things we do are in a way offshoots of who we are. And this is what anthroposophy is studying and, of course, also doing in a very practical way in the consequences in the world. And could you give a specific example of that, perhaps in relation to Waldorf education, which I think of all of the ideas that Steiner had, the audience is probably most familiar with that one. That's correct. And if you think of Waldorf education as being essentially a way of educating the human being in light of its spiritual and physical nature, then you can see that everything that is done in Waldorf education, every decision about when you teach what and how you teach it and how you follow up from year to year, all of these decisions about the curriculum of a wall of education are derived from a certain picture of what a human being is. So, for example, if you recognize, as many psychologists like Piaget recognize, there are certain times in your life when you're particularly good at certain things. For instance, if you are five or six years old, you have a natural capacity to pick up language, not only your own language, but foreign languages as well. And that is, for example, one reason why the Waldorf schools start in the first grade with one, often two, foreign languages beyond your own language. 
And these are then part of the education, not simply because you want to be a, a world citizen, which is certainly another reason, but also because at that age, you're particularly gifted through capacities of hearing, for example, also of speaking. As a child, you're particularly gifted at that age to picking up the nuances of a foreign language, frankly, long before you come to understand it cognitively, for example, through the grammar. And that brings us to another point, that if you think about the growing child uh, at the age of five or six, when he or she enters the first grade, you can appreciate that they have certain kind of natural affinities for the world. They love to be in the world. They love to know the world. Frankly, they love to imitate the world. And therefore, when you study in the first grade how the children are educated, you'll discover how much of the learning is done through this imitative capacity. And that's one example of how the education closely follows the developing capacities of a human being as it goes through various phases of uh, growing up. And I find that maybe one of the most fascinating aspects of Waldorf education is how it meets the child where they're at developmentally. So coming back to anthroposophy and the relationship to Waldorf education, the connection there, a big connection is Rudolf Steiner. So do you, could you speak a little bit about Rudolf Steiner, how he founded the study of anthroposophy and how this viewpoint of the human being evolved? Yes, of course, that's a very long story. If you take the full biography, I've just recently read one of his uh, biographies uh, and it comes to some 600 pages. And it's <laughs> reading, even though it's so Quite long. long. <laughs> Nonetheless, you can say in its essentials that Rudolf Steiner, who was born in what today would be the Northern Balkans at that time of his life in the mid-1800s, was still part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Rudolf Steiner then and his family moved fairly soon after he was born. Uh, by the way, on this very day we're talking, February 27th, uh, he moved his, with his family closer to Vienna and ended up then going to university in Vienna. It's worth mentioning in the detail that his father was a railway station master, which is to say that Rudolf Steiner grew up in what would then have been the cutting edge of technology. That's important for later in the story. So Steiner goes to Vienna to university. He majors in science because he recognizes science as, again, the cutting edge of society. And in the consequence of that, he then ends up editing the scientific works of a German poet and author and scientist, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And in working with the works of Goethe, there Rudolf Steiner begins to recognize a whole new way of doing science, which today we would call either Goethean science or more commonly called phenomenological science or sense-based science. Instead of looking at science or through the world, at the world through a kind of theoretical lens of scientific theory, you look at the world through its phenomena. And from its phenomena, then you derive laws rather than imposing laws on what you perceive. That was the beginning of Steiner's work in science. But to jump now over several decades to his work in education, Rudolf Steiner recognized that if there was going to be significant change in society, not only in science now, but also in commerce and culture and government and the rest of it, if there was to be significant change or evolution of society, you have to start with education. He had tried other ways. They were partly successful. Some of them failed. For example, right after World War I, when he tried to introduce new ways of governance into Central Europe in the light of the chaos of the end of World War I, those didn't go very far. But at the same time, so now we're talking 1919, right after the end of World War I in the center of Germany, there was a fellow who was a student of Rudolf Steiner's. This man was called Emil Malt. And Emil Malt was manager owner of a cigarette factory, which was called the Waldorf Astoria Cigarette Company. 
based in Stuttgart, southern Germany. And Emil Molt had the idea after World War I that because of the hyperinflation at that time, the silly idea you would be paid in the morning and by the time you got the money to the bank, it was worth maybe a tenth of what it was when you received it a few hours earlier. Given the fact that money was so subject to hyperinflation, Emil Malt had the idea of trying to provide services for his workers in ways other than financial. And one idea he had was to start a school for the children of his workers. Therefore, Emil Malt approached Rudolf Steiner and asked him, would he, Steiner, be willing to help him, Emil Malt, start a new kind of school? And Rudolf Steiner said, yes, he would. So in other words, the beginnings of the Wall of Education was a request from this industrialist for a school for the workers of his factory. And that was then the basis of the Wall of Schools, sometimes called the Steiner School in Stuttgart, uh, which allowed then Rudolf Steiner to begin to do in practical ways what he had been already developing for decades before in terms of his ideas as to what a human being is and how a human being grows and how a human being is educated. In that sense, you can say the Wall of School was a direct outcropping of his anthroposophical work and, of course, has become one of the most famous expressions of anthroposophy in these days. And I can say not just these days, but all around the world. Most certainly. I'm curious how the process evolved, I guess. So you're saying for many years, even before the first Waldorf School started, that he was developing and creating these ideas around education and how to meet the needs of the developing human. How long did that development period go on for? And did he observe children? Did he teach children? And that's how he was, I guess, moving through that that process before he actually started the first Waldorf school? That's correct. And there are two important points here. The first is that even as a student undergraduate at the university university in Vienna, uh, Rudolf Steiner became a private tutor specifically became a a tutor in the household of the Spechts living in Vienna, who had a particular child with certain educational hindrances. I won't say handicaps, but hindrances. Uh, And so Rudolf Steiner became the private tutor to this boy. And by developing certain very concrete and particular exercises, was able to get this boy over his hindrances, such that this boy eventually became a medical doctor. And this was one way in which Rudolf Steiner was able to work in a very practical way on how you educate children, whether they have hindrances or not. That's the first part. The second part is that Rudolf Steiner had a fundamental, shall we say, rule of of law, something he just lived by. Others have done the same. And that was he recognized that if he was to do anything of significance in the world in terms of changing it or helping it to evolve, he could only act in response to somebody posing him a question. And many of the exercises, many of the initiatives that Rudolf Steiner uh, started, not only in education, but also in the arts and government, all of these initiatives arose only because somebody came to him with a question. And so we go back to Emil Molt. He was the man who came to Rudolf Steiner with a question about education. Yeah, you could say that in a way Rudolf Steiner had to wait about 30 or more years for somebody to come up with the question. So he was ready, but he knew that he could not be effective and the education would not succeed unless somebody in the world approached him with a specific concrete question, like the question Emil Milt posed about starting a school for the workmen in Stuttgart. It sounds as though he was waiting for the world to be ready for the answer. And when somebody asked, then he knew that the world was ready, perhaps. Yes, and he recognized that there's a kind of spiritual law there, that if you wish to be effective, you have to wait for the question. 
speaking now about other ideas, and I'm not sure even how you reference these other ideas in relation to anthroposophy. So I've described it before kind of as if anthroposophy is a tree and the branches are, say, Waldorf education, biodynamic farming, uh, maybe anthroposophical medicine. So could we speak about the other, I'm using the term branches of that tree, what what are the other major ideas that that Steiner had that are still around today? Yeah, that's a good analogy, especially if you think about how a tree grows. Recognize that every tree, whatever its complexion, uh, will require essentially four ingredients, should we say, or four elements. It'll certainly need soil. It'll need some kind of fluid. It'll need some kind of aeration. And of course, it'll need warmth or sun. And in that regard, you can speak indeed of the tree of anthroposophy being sourced, shall we say, or being derived from those elements, both of substance and of sunlight. Having said that now to the branches, um, it depends how you count. There are somewhere between eight and 10 branches. Uh, the one, as you mentioned, is perhaps most well known is the pedagogical branch, that is to say the branch of all of education, kindergarten now through even undergraduate university life. That's the one. Uh, very closely connected, you've mentioned it already, actually, and that is the branch of medicine. A whole homeopathic approach to the treatment of the human being is very much a part of uh, the anthroposophical tree, shall we say. Uh, a third one, again, mentioned briefly already in this conversation, is the whole approach to uh, what is now called organic farming, but most precisely in his case is biodynamic farming, which bases itself entirely upon an organic view of the earth. But then there are other areas which may be less well-known, and yet they're very widespread across the world. Uh, the next one might be mentioned is a whole movement for handicapped children or disabled children uh, in what may be known to some people as the Camp Hill Movement, a series of villages in which children with very serious lifelong handicaps are treated in a remarkable way. And we can talk about, more about that if you're interested. But just to finish some of the other branches of this tree, um, you can say that in addition to all what I've mentioned so far, there's not only a branch, but a series of branches connected with the arts, both the visual arts and the performing arts, uh, visual in terms of sculpture and architecture. There's a whole anthroposophical work around the buildings and so forth, the style is quite distinctively anthroposophical, if you know where to look for it. So the visual arts, painting and uh, lazuring and all kinds of uh, other visual arts as well. Then with the performing arts, which is still part of the arts branch, he had not only influence in various arts that we know, like drama and music and poetry, he also actually was responsible for introducing a whole new performing art form having to do with movement, speech in movement, which is known by the name of eurythmy. Not eurythmics, by the way, but eurythmy. So that that's, is a whole set of branches by itself. That set of branches can be put next door, shall we say, or close up on the trunk, to another branch or set of branches having to do then with science. He was very much involved, remember, in technology from his family life and also from his university studies, very much involved with research into the practical applications of natural science, both the life sciences and the physical sciences, mathematics as well, by the way. And they also form very much a concrete expression of this anthroposophical endeavor. To finish the branches for the moment, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how many we're counting right now, but just to finish the major branches, there's a whole other area which is much less well-known and perhaps still uh, fairly nascent. And that is the branch which I would call economic life. He had many ideas about how economic life also 
political life and cultural life could be reimagined and made much more healthy. But on the concrete level, he developed a whole approach to banking. And there are, for example, around the world, various institutions, which are what are sometimes called anthroposophical banks, not because they fund anthroposophy, but rather because they are approaching economic life out of an anthroposophical perspective. That leaves maybe one last branch for the moment, uh, although there are further ones. Uh, and that branch is ex not exactly a branch coming directly from the trunk, but it is certainly connected with the organism. And that is an initiative that he took, again, in response to a question. And this question was coming from a group of priests who were trying to find a new way to re-enliven religious practice. Again, they came to him with a question in the 1920s, and out of that question then arose a whole ritual, which some people know then as the Church of the Christian Community, which is, again, a small religious movement, but it is, again, worldwide. I would say those are the major branches arising from this tree of anthroposophy. I'm curious if you could speak to this aspect about Rudolf Steiner a little bit, because I feel like this is where there's maybe some confusion in popular culture, maybe, about how his ideas evolved, and that is surrounding his clairvoyance, I guess. Could you speak a little bit about that and what connection that actually had with his with the development of all of these ideas. Yes. Uh, as a child, Rudolf Steiner had various experiences of um, what we would call spiritual events, and he assumed that everybody had them. And when he discovered as a child that he was having experiences that others were not, he went quiet and decided that this was not something he would talk about. However, because they were not dreams or fantasies, but experiences, he recognized that like any experience, uh, this could be subjected to scientific discipline. And that's in a way what he became. He became, by his own language, a spiritual scientist, meaning that he was treating the words and also the events and the experiences beyond the physical, that is to say the metaphysical world. He was treating that as one might treat any scientific inquiry. That means a disciplined approach an empirical approach, an approach that doesn't presuppose until you have some idea what you've got, again, working out of the phenomena rather than imposing logical or theoretical constructs on those phenomena. And out of that experience and out of the disciplined practice of recording and describing and then deriving ideas from these experiences, he then developed what we might call then the body of anthroposophy. In that sense, it's not clairvoyance in the sense of seeing things so much as it is thinking things but thinking things according to laws, not just of the physical world, but also according to the laws of the spiritual or the metaphysical world. That would be a brief way, I think, of characterizing his life's work as a spiritual scientist. Right. And maybe you can correct me if I'm confused, but these exercises or experiences, he believed that anybody could have them as well if they practiced some of the same practices, <laughs> meditation. I'm not sure what those practices would be, but uh, was that the idea? Yes, exactly. And in fact, his early works, going back now to the 1880s and 1890s, were precisely along those lines. He wrote a series of articles, which were later collected into a single book under the title now called How to Know Higher Worlds, in which he offered very, very simple basic daily exercises and monthly exercises that would allow you to develop a certain kind of, first of all, inner calm, and then an inner attentiveness, and then an inner awareness inner awareness, however, of the outer world, not simply about the inner soul world. And in these ways, very concrete and very specific ways uh, of practicing these exercises, he said that folks could come along understanding, even if they could not have direct 
clairvoyant experiences. They could understand the experiences of others and find them to be credible. And that work was really his lifelong ambition because he was never, uh, never saw himself as being either a guru or someone who would lead people. He wanted people to lead themselves, but he was providing a map by which these people could find their way along their own chosen paths. Yeah, I find that very interesting because at the time that was pretty progressive, right? Up until that point, um, spirituality was something very prescribed, I guess. People went to a church or they went to a temple and they were told what was behind spirituality and he was giving people tools to actually experience it for themselves. And I find that very interesting. So is that how Steiner became popular in that period in the 1880s, 1890s? And I'm assuming he gave lectures on these topics and more and more people became familiar with his work at that point? Yeah. So there are two important points you mentioned there. Uh, the first is that although he recognized the value of ancient traditions, and he certainly grew from ancient traditions, and he certainly valued the consequences and outcomings of those traditions. By the same token, he said, times have changed. And now he was saying this long before many institutions of uh, authority crumbled. <clears throat> he was saying back in the 1880s, <clears throat> 1890s, that times had changed. And now what used to be handled through authorities or through institutions, now to be successful or to be healthy, would need increasingly to be handled by the individual human being, him or herself. That's the first point, and that was very much the guidance of his whole work throughout his life. Uh, sometimes people joke about saying what the doctor said, but the doctor said only one thing. He said, don't believe me. All I want you to do is understand me. You must make your own decisions about what you think is right. As long as you understand what I'm saying, then it's up to you. So that's in sense, essentially the, the first point. The second point about his popularity. It is remarkable, and sometimes we forget this fact. It was remarkable how well known he was in his own time. Bear in mind that he lived uh, his early part of life in Berlin, which at that time was a center of culture and scientific revolution as well. I think only a Max Planck and other people like that. Uh, so he was very much a part of the scientific and the cultural milieu of his age. Uh, and beyond that, he traveled widely. He didn't travel outside Europe, but he did travel very, very widely inside Europe, from Norway in the south, in, in the north rather, to Italy and so forth in the south. Uh, and in these voyages, then, he was giving, as you say, lectures, public lectures, also private lectures, uh, giving lectures to thousands of people at a time. There was a congress, for example, in Vienna, in the very famous uh, music hall there, music concert hall, where two and more thousand people were in attendance at these lectures. So he was very well known in his own time. Uh, and in that sense, his influence uh, can be seen to spread out through other names that we would not associate with anthroposophy. Artists, poets, dramatists, and so forth, they were all students of anthroposophy, or at least they were familiar with anthroposophy. And in many cases, they had private conversations with Rudolf Steiner. Whether they accepted him or rejected him is not the point. The point is that they were familiar with what he was advocating. Right. And I do want to talk more about the spread of anthroposophy over time and over that period, but I want to come back to a point that you made about the branches of this anthroposophical tree that we're talking about. And that that's the arts. And I'm curious because uh, having gone to a Waldorf school, uh, it seems art is so deeply, richly connected to anthroposophy. So do you want to talk about that connection? How, what, what inspires that or what inspired that for Steiner and why so much art surrounding anthroposophy? I would say there might be three connections here. The first, let's take the first one. The first one is pedagogical. That means that Rudolf Steiner recognized that through the practice of the arts, 
you can come to know almost anything much more profoundly. Take a simple example. Uh, imagine now that you uh, read the play Hamlet. Now imagine that you go to see the play Hamlet. And now imagine that you get to play Ophelia or Hamlet in the play Hamlet. You could recognize already how much more deeply you come to understand this play, not only by reading it, but by seeing it as an art and then ultimately performing it as an art. But that idea of getting to know something more deeply by performing it through the arts applies not only to the arts themselves, it also applies to the sciences. So therefore, for example, if you travel and you travel with a camera, that's one thing. If you travel with a diary, that's something else. If you travel with a sketchbook, it's something else again. And if you've had the experience of those differences, then you know how much more deeply you can come to know something, not simply by photographing it or even writing about it, but by sketching it. And that idea applies then also then in the natural sciences, life sciences, and physical sciences, both in the sense that in Waldorf schools, yes, you learn not only about the arts through the arts, you learn about the sciences through the arts as well. And I can tell you a story more about that if you're interested. So that's one aspect of the significance of the arts through teaching as a, as a vehicle for learning to know the world much more deeply. That's one. Second thread might be called the therapeutic thread. That is to say, we now begin to know much better these days through empirical evidence just how effective the arts can be in healing. Not just healing of the mood or the soul or the mind, but also physical healing. This, by the way, is no secret to the ancient Greeks. They did that all the time. But nonetheless, we now begin to understand the significance of music for therapy, even right down into the beating of the heart. Uh, we begin to understand the significance of painting for various kinds of fluids in the body. It is remarkable how the arts now are beginning to be discovered as a powerful therapeutic medicine, shall we call it. And that was also part of Rostana's thinking when he brought the arts, for example, into education or into his own medical practice. That's a second thread. So the first being pedagogical, the second being therapeutic. And then, of course, there is the obvious thread, and that is the arts as a profession. And of course, one can speak of very, very many different arts where Rudolf Steiner was active himself as a professional artist, but also the way in which these arts then became an expression of anthroposophical work in, in a more general way. Just to take a couple examples of that, I mentioned earlier that if you visit the headquarters of the anthroposophical work now based in a village outside Basel, a village called Donach in the northwestern Switzerland, there you find a remarkable building. It is called the Goethe Arnhem. It is designed by Rudolf Steiner. Actually, it was the second one. The first one burnt down. Uh, the second design also was of his making, although it was built after he died. And it is often featured in many books on architecture because he was pioneering a whole new way of working with sculpted concrete that, for example, Le Corbusier took up more uh, more famously after that. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a brand new way of designing buildings and also constructing them out of concrete, uh, flowing concrete material. That's one example out of many different arts where Rudolf Steiner was directly involved in either introducing new ideas or taking ideas of his time one step further. So the whole thread of the professional use of the arts, both visual arts and performing arts, uh, is again, I think, very much an expression of this anthroposophical work in the world. And for those listening, uh, this headquarters, for the world headquarters for anthroposophy, the society, is it called the Society for Anthroposophy? Is that what it's called? 
is usually called the Anthroposophical Society. Yes, the Anthroposophical Society. I have actually shared photos of that building on our social media feed because they are so beautiful and so inspiring and amazing, really. I'm curious if you could share initially when you were talking about the pedagogical side with art, you mentioned that there was a story that you could share in relation. And I would love, I would love for you to share that actually. <laughs> sure. Uh, this goes back to the uh, use of the arts in the sciences. So there was some years ago, a parent evening in the Waldorf school. And during that evening, there was some, some work of the students, so-called main lesson books laid out on a table. And in this particular parent evening, one of the parents picked up a main lesson book and began to kind of riffle through the pages. And he came on through this book. It was a book on ninth grade physiology. Uh, he came in this book to a page, which was the drawing of a kidney. Now, you may know that the kidney is a very complicated organ, a bit like a ball of spaghetti. Very difficult to draw and very difficult to make any sense of. But as this person was looking at this drawing, he made a realization. He realized that this student had really come to understand the kidney in this drawing. And the reason this man knew this was he was himself a medical doctor. More precisely, he was a nephrologist, that is, a doctor of kidneys. He really understood the kidney, in other words. And he recognized in this drawing by this ninth grade student that this student had so well understood the kidney that he not only or she not only could draw it, but could actually draw out the functionality of the kidney, not just the structure. And of course, if you do a drawing, it's one thing to replicate like a map the structure of an organ. But what's much more difficult is to render those aspects or those details of the organ that reveal its function or its functionality. And that's what this ninth grader did. Afterwards, this, this doctor wrote a testimonial to the school in which he said that he, as a doctor, more precisely as a teaching doctor, because he taught in a medical school, he said he had residences. He had students in his program, second-year medical students, who were unable or who would be unable to draw in this way because they wouldn't have the capacity, the artistic capacity to render the, the scientific functionality of an organ as complicated as the kidney. Wow. So I want to come back again to the spread of anthroposophy and how widespread anthroposophy is now and it became. I've heard that there are people interested in anthroposophy all over the world, but so much of Steiner's work seems to be rooted or somehow connected to Christianity. So how does it relate to someone who is Muslim or has, has another religious belief system? Well, I think the first thing to say is there are things that are essential to anthroposophy, and then there are things that are what you might call attributes. It's like clothing. You know, you go up into your room and you jump into this or that set of clothes, and you're the same person even if you choose different clothing. It's the difference between what you might call the essence and the attributes. That is to say, who you are and what you wear. There are certain basic ideas, I think, these are basic ideas about what the human being is, which I would say are essential. That is to say, they are universal. They, it doesn't matter what your religious belief is, you will still, I think, find these credible statements about what a human being is. For example, it goes without saying that we are obviously physical organisms we have a body. Nobody would disagree with that. Most people would agree also there's a difference between a dead body and a living body. So in that sense, we're not only physical substance, but we're living physical substance. Most folks can go along with that. Then we're more than just like a plant, a living physical substance. We are a conscious or sentient 
living physical substance. That is to say, we have awareness, at least during the day. And again, I think most people would go along with that. Then there's one last element, which might be a little bit more controversial, but not that much more. And that is in addition to being conscious and living and physical, we are to some degree or less self-conscious. And notice that we don't come that way. That is to say, this self-consciousness grows out of our, our, our consciousness as we grow older. A baby really has no clue where it ends and the world begins. And there comes a point, and it's often in the age of two or three, depends on the child, where the child has initial hints of being a separate being in a world as opposed to simply being. And these four aspects of being a physical substance, a living physical substance, a sentient or conscious living physical substance, and possibly a self-conscious, these are four elements that Rudasthana describes as essential aspects of what a human being is. My feeling is that is something fairly universal, and it doesn't matter what your religious practice is, those I think make sense. Those examples of the essential. Then, of course, there are attributes, and it is true that Rudolf Steiner, growing up as he did in the 18 and 1900s in Central Europe, he borrowed a lot of the language, a lot of the metaphors, a lot of the imagery of his time. And a lot of that, of course, is Christian. Having said that, though, one also has to remember that just as he developed new ideas for education and medicine and so forth, as we've been discussing, he also developed radically new ideas for religious practice. It is true, he borrowed some of the language from Christianity to describe this, but it would be a mistake to assume that he was essentially espousing Christian beliefs, even though he used some of the Christian language. In that sense, again, we're getting to the essential and the attributes. I would say there are certain essential ideas which he advanced, which a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jew or a Christian could equally well embrace because they're not rooted in a particular religion, even if some of the language is borrowed from one of the religions as opposed to another. So it's a question of figuring out what's the essential in anthroposophy and what is a kind of clothing of anthroposophy or the language of anthroposophical expression. Right. And I've heard it described where there are Waldorf schools in countries where uh, Christianity isn't as widely practiced. And to relate it, I guess, somebody said to me, a teacher said to me once, you know, the developmental needs of the human being are the same, no matter what area of the world the human is developing in. Um, and that's really the, the approach through Waldorf education and that it's not connected at all religious, religiously, you know. Um, and I've, I've also talked about that in other episodes as well. So I want to speak about your work. Um, I know that you uh, work with the Center for Anthroposophy. And I want to talk about your survey that you've done that was just published. So could you speak about the survey first? Yes, we'll go to that. But let me quickly pick up a uh, last comment you made about religions there. It's worth mentioning, I think, because it illustrates the point. Perfect. Uh, as you've said yourself, there are there's anthroposophical work around the world. There are Waldorf schools around the world. There's something like about 1,200 now Waldorf school worldwide in some 65 countries or more, if you count the kindergartens. And in that context, you can say, yes, Waller schools appear in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, every continent, the exception is Antarctica, and every other continent, there are Waller schools. In fact, you can say in every time zone except one, there is a Waller school somewhere. The one exception is a slice of the world that has no land, therefore no Waldorf school. But in that sense, Waldorf schools are truly international there around the world. And if you go to the Waldorf schools, of course, there are certain things that are universal. They are 
related to what I'm calling the essential. But then if you actually go to the specifics of the curriculum, go to the specific choices of examples of poetry or stories or religious uh, expressions or music, these will be very different from one part of the world to another. That's a way of saying that wall of education, even though it has this universal element, can fit in, shall we say, or can take on many, many different kinds of clothing. And therefore, there are Waldorf schools in Israel, also in the Arab world, in the Asian worlds, in the Buddhist centers as well. And it is true that there are more Waldorf schools in certain parts of the world than others. Yet at the same time, if I think, where is Waldorf education growing the fastest? I would say it's in China, where obviously there is relatively little, if any, Christian influence. So depending where you go, you'll find wall of education expressed in many different religions. And in some cases, very interesting cases, uh, wall of schools have been placed deliberately at the fault line between rival groups, for example, between Israelis and Arabs, or between different groups uh, that were fighting each other back in some decades ago in Southern Africa. So in that sense, wall of education can not only take on different guises, it sometimes can be in the middle of conflicting guises as a place of refuge and peace. Yeah, I find I find that very fascinating, actually. I feel like I could have an entire episode just talking about that, really. Right. But let's go to now to your other question. Your question had to do with um, a survey which we did of Waldorf graduates, how they fare after high school. And this was published, as you say, by the Research Institute for Waldorf Education, of which I'm executive director. And this was a survey we did uh, in the last year or so. It just came out uh, this week, as a matter of fact, in published form. Uh, the book is called Into the World, How Warlock Graduates Fare After High School. And in that survey, we obviously wanted to know how do Warlock kids do and what do they do after they graduate? So we asked various kinds of questions about their undergraduate studies, their major, and then about their career, and then about their human, their personal values. And to summarize just a couple of elements, because it's a 250-page book, so we can't talk about that in one sentence. Uh, but to summarize the essentials there, um, we tried to unpack certain, shall we say, misconceptions about world of education. One of them, one of these misconceptions may arise if you see how much art plays a part in education, as we talked about a while back. And therefore, the mistake may be that, oh, Wall of Education is an art school. And if you go to a Wall of School, you're doomed to becoming some kind of artist. Well, we had that question. And therefore, we were keen to know what do kids do when they go off to college? And a significant number of them do indeed major in the so-called STEM subjects. So S-T-E-M, standing for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Now, we've tracked these numbers over the years. And when we did the similar survey about a decade ago, which was looking at all of graduates from some 60 years, we discerned that about 12% of the Waldorf graduates go off into so-called STEM undergraduate majors. The more recent survey, though, shows us that the students who went off to um, university between 1990 and about 2010, there about 17% of them report that they are going into or have gone into this STEM as their major. However, in this more recent survey, we had a subset of the most recent graduates, i.e. between 2010 and 2017, when the survey was conducted. And among that youngest group, the number reporting they went into STEM as a major was 22%. In other words, we've gone from 12 to 17 to 22% in something just under a decade which is a roughly doubling of the number going off into science, technology, engineering, and math. 
That number is significant because the most recent number, 22%, is identical, within 1%, is identical with what other independent schools report from their graduates when they go off to university. Because for the first time, we were able to compare our results with the results from the so-called National Association of Independent Schools, NEIS, because they also do this kind of survey. And the survey that they did, we were able to replicate, and we got the exactly same number going off into science as they had. So that's one thing we were trying to identify, just how well do our students do, not only in the arts, but also in the sciences. Now, a second thing that we were looking at, obviously, beyond university, is where do they go, which professions do they take up? And that I can summarize fairly easily to say that the majority of Waldorf students coming out of university will end up in some kind of profession of what's sometimes called the helping and healing arts. In other words, those professions like teaching, nursing, physicians, and so forth, social science, social work, these areas where people are involved in helping other people is by far the most common profession that Waldorf graduates take on. And if you know the education, that should not be a huge surprise. The third thing, and the last thing I'll mention for now, that we asked them about was what kinds of things do they value? Uh, we asked, for example, what is your greatest joy, uh, but also what is your greatest challenge? Uh, and in regard to the first question of what they most valued and what they took most pleasure in, again, the, the item that they identified most was working or being with other human beings, family, relations, friends, colleagues. And interestingly enough, the area where they seemed to have least uh, attention paid or least uh, importance paid was their financial well-being or how much money they were making. This was way down on the list. And that, again, is a bit different from what you might see if you profile other kinds of graduates. So in short, we were trying to establish, you know, typically, what does a Waldorf graduate look like? And that's a very dangerous question because they're so different. That's part of the education. We're trying to prepare them to head off into the world that they've chosen, not to the world that we would choose for them. Uh, and therefore, it's very dangerous to make any generalizations. But if you do, at least in this very broad sweep, try to get some idea of how Waldorf students fare, then you can say, first of all, they fare very well. And secondly, they fare in areas having to do with helping their fellow human being. And if I could make another sweeping generalization, I would say maybe from my own experience with my friends who are Waldorf alumni, but it sounds perhaps that the study found as well that they seem to prioritize their own happiness over financial gain, perhaps, it sounds yes. like. Yes. And I would say beyond their own happiness, the happiness of others. Yes. And I'm curious about the parameters of the survey. So how many uh, student, how many alumni were surveyed and uh, were they graduates of 12 years of Waldorf education or eight years or somewhere in the middle? Um, and a yes, question that I had. Uh, one criterion that we set for this survey, which by the way was done online, so it's an online survey, followed up then with face-to-face -face interviews with some of them. Um, the online survey specified that we, that in order to participate in this survey, you had to be a 12th grade graduate. In other words, it didn't matter when you joined the school, but you had to graduate from high school. It would be very, very difficult to track back students who graduated from schools in eighth grade, for example, those schools that have no high school. It's a project down the road, but that's a much more ambitious plan. So we're talking about high school graduates, even if they went so-called Waldorf lifers from kindergarten right the way through, and roughly half of our participants were Waldorf lifers, by the way. Uh, so that was, the, that was the first part. 
the in terms of the reach of our survey, <clears throat> we sent this survey out, as I say, online, using then the Waldorf schools as the um, the juncture point to send these out to their individual students so that the anonymity of the students was preserved. Uh, and we got uh, 1,066 responses, which is a fairly good response because that represents about 10% of the population we were, we were addressing, namely those Wolof students who graduated in the last quarter century. I should mention that unlike the previous survey, which looked at the whole range of Wolof students going right back to the first Waldorf graduates in North America of 1943. Uh, this most recent survey looked only at the graduates starting in 1990. We did that because we wanted to get impressions of the more recent graduates in terms of their more recent experience, because obviously if they had critiques and comments about education, we want to remedy those, and the more recent the critique, the more relevant it may be. So in that sense, we were looking at a population of just over 10,000 graduates since 1990, and of them, as I say, 10% responded, which is a pretty good rate. Um, the last thing to say is that in those responses, we subdivided them into those who were of college age and of those who were post-college, that is to say, in their 30s or 40s. And roughly half of our respondents were college age, and roughly half were post-college age. So we're dealing with a fairly young population. Uh, that is to say, we're dealing with a lot of millennials and people now who begin to have very different ideas about what they think is important and how they view their education. And their responses were really quite fascinating in that aspect. I think this next qu question is going to connect, actually. And it's, what are simple ways that someone could begin to approach anthroposophy? And perhaps you could connect that with uh, your work with the Center for Anthroposophy. Well, there are various avenues, obviously. Um, I've found that sometimes one helpful way to begin is to come through the channel that connects to something that you're really interested in. For example, if you're really interested in environmentalism or farming, then just come at anthroposophy through the practical expression of anthroposophy in what we previously talked about, namely farming or biodynamic agriculture. That's one way. Another way is if you are a parent, and you have a child, and you're now trying to find the right education for your child, you're trying to find an education that really addresses the whole human being rather than just one aspect of it, like the cognitive aspect, then again, you might find interesting to come at Waldorf education, or to come at anthroposophy through the uh, practical work of a Waldorf school. Or if you have certain interest in health or hygiene, you might find interesting some of the ideas that Rudolf Steiner had about the nature, for example, of the heart, or the way digestion works or how one can uh, address common conditions like modern anxiety, which, by the way, Rudolf said would become epidemic. He said that over a century ago. Now here we are. So that's another way to imagine how you would get into uh, understanding that, possibly through one of the more practical, what we call branches earlier in this conversation. That would be one way to do it. There is, however, another way, <clears throat> and that is some people like to start with the beginning. That is to say, they want to start with the essential, not with the expressions of anthroposophy, but with the essence of anthroposophy. And that brings me then to what are sometimes called foundational studies. We call them explorations. And these are programs, for example, which we do through the Center of Anthroposophy, where we run programs in the course of a year, mostly one uh, month per weekend, working again very much through the arts, but through the vehicle of the arts, introducing people then to the basic ideas of anthroposophy and, of course, some of the basic exercises of anthroposophy designed to make you a healthier and a more sort of centered human being. That's another way to get at anthroposophy, not through the branches now, but through the roots, shall we say, through the essence of the different practices uh, through the foundational studies. 
A third, and maybe this is the last one for now, a third way to come at anthroposophy is to see its expression through the arts. So for example, if you're a singer or if you're a dancer or if you're an actor, you may find through these different artistic media something very new about the art you know well. For example, to take music as a simple one, well, not so simple, but if you think about music, most people imagine that when you sing, you basically breathe in and then you sing out. That is to say, the sound comes out of you. And that, of course, is physiologically correct. But if you study music in the way that was inspired by a student of Rudolf Steiner's, she works with a very different concept. She imagines that when you sing, you don't push the sound out, but rather you bring it in. Now, from a point of view of physiology, that may strike you as nonsense. But if you actually practice singing with this picture, with this metaphor, with this way of imagining sound, you get a very, very beautiful rounded sound. And there are now choirs that are trained in this way, for example, in Europe, they're trained in this way and they produce beautiful, beautiful recordings and, and, and concerts uh, because they're practicing the art of singing with this very radically different approach to the making of sound. Those are some examples of how you can come to know anthroposophy. I'll mention one last thing, just because it might be of more general interest, uh, and that is more recently a book has been written by someone who is not an anthroposophist by any means, although he has some familiarity with Campbell and biodynamics through his own family, but he is a professor at the Harvard Divinity School, and he wrote a book called Echo Alchemy, the subtitle is interesting, is called uh, Anthroposophy and the History and Future of Environmentalism. And he basically then works through various movements, the feminist movement, the environmental movement, ecological movement, and so on, educational movement. And he shows that these different movements are in a way very much compatible with the fundamental ideas, the essential ideas of anthroposophy. Which is to say that if these environmental groups and these uh, feminist groups and other progressive groups, if they were to tap into the roots of anthroposophy, they would find a whole new profound meaning to the work and the struggles that they have. The book is by Dan McKinnon called Echo Alchemy, and I would commend it to anybody who's trying to come at anthroposophy through this more, shall we say, neutral way, that is to say, guided by someone who himself is not a practicing anthroposophist. So I have one last question for you, and I'm hoping to ask it to each guest in this season where I'm covering anthroposophy. Would you say there, basically my question is, is there a major myth, would you say, about anthroposophy or Waldorf education that you could debunk? <laughs> Well, here's one of them. Many people will say that anthroposophy is a religion, or at least it's a cult. Now, you have to ask, first of all, well, what are the preconditions for something to be a religion? And the first precondition, of course, is there must be worship. And I have to say, in anthroposophy, there is no worship, least of all of Rudolf Steiner, but there's no worship of anything. It's a study, it's a science. It's not in that sense a practice of worship, even though it is a practice of meditation. Those should not be confused. So that's the first debunking I might do. Anthroposophy is not a religion. Related to that then often the statement that anthroposophy is a cult. And by a cult, I'm not quite sure what is meant, but usually it means there's some one person who is revered, if not worshipped, and who is followed regardless what she or he says. As I suggested earlier in this conversation, that is the very last thing that Rudolf Steiner would have allowed or wanted. As I said before, he said, don't believe me, just understand me. 
And in fact, he, he railed against those groups where he felt a figure or some kind of human being was set up as a quasi-divine or quasi-wise uh, authority that people would follow. It was for him the last thing he wanted to have happen. And he was quite angry when he discovered that some of his followers, some of his students, were trying to treat him as though he were the head of some kind of group like that. So again, I would try to debunk not only the myth of anthroposophy as a religion, but also anthroposophy as a cult. Thank you for that. You know, I realized, Douglas, that I did have one other question that I'd love for you to answer before we wrap up, and that is how you see anthroposophy is relevant today. That really is my last question, too. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, that, of course, is a huge question, and I think I can only come at it with one little lens, and that is if you think about what's happening in our culture today, this is maybe a bit of a generalization, but I think it is. it, it can be pursued. If you think about the beginnings of the United States, so go back into the 1700s and even beyond that after the Civil War, 1800s, I think you can appreciate that this country was founded under the banner of the ideal of freedom, freedom of expression or freedom from a king or all kinds of freedoms were at the fundament of the forming and the forging of this country with positive and negative aspects to be sure. However, I think something happened in our culture, and I'm not quite sure when it was. It might have been as far back as the 1980s, but certainly by the 1990s, and with certainty for me after 2001 and the events of 9-11. A lot of people by now, a lot, maybe even a majority of people, are willing to say that they are, they are willing to put up with a certain measure of constriction in their freedom if that guarantees another ideal, which is the ideal of equity. That is to say, equal rights, but more than that, equal access, both to education, to the arts, to science, to money, and the rest. And so for me, there's been an interesting shift in our culture between a culture that is fundamentally fueled or fundamentally uh, following the ideal of freedom to a culture where freedom begins to take second place to this other ideal of equality or equity. Now, what has that got to do with anthroposophy? Well, Rudolf Steiner had some very radical ideas, as I mentioned earlier briefly, about how society could be formed in such a way that it would be healthy. He took some ideas, or more precisely ideals, from the French Revolution, freedom being the first one, equality being the second one. But as you know, there was a third ideal that also was behind the French Revolution, and that had to do with what they called fraternité, fraternity, or sister brotherhood. And these three ideals are very different, and they belong in different aspects of our life. For Rudolf Steiner, he felt the ideal of freedom belonged in what we sometimes call the cultural life. That is to say, the life of uh, religion, the life of education, the life of medicine, all the arts, all the sciences, all of culture. He said that aspect of our society is fueled, is healthy, to the degree that it is imbued by the ideal of freedom. However, he went on to say that the moment you move from cultural life to what he called the political life or the life of government, of human rights, and so forth, he said there a second ideal is actually more important than freedom, and that ideal is equality. And we begin to understand that, I think, more in our society today. However, he said when you get to economic life, not to be confused now with the cultural life or even the political life, when you get to the economic life, there he said there is another, a third ideal, which is the ideal that fuels economic health, and that is the ideal of brother-sisterhood. For him, the mischief began when you take one of these ideals and appropriate it 
to a different sphere of our society. For example, if you take freedom and make it applied to economic life in what then becomes free-for-all, or if you take the ideals of equality, or better said, take the ideal of brother-sisterhood and apply it to uh, political life, and then you end up with secret societies or brotherhoods that try to overpower the life of government. So for Rudolf Steiner, there were three spheres of life, of societal life, three different ideals that fueled each of those three aspects. And we had to be really clear about which ideals work best in which spheres of our life. So to come back to our present times, I would say we've learned the role, the value of freedom. Now we are beginning to learn the role and the value of equity. But we have still to learn the significance, the incredible significance and the health that comes from this third and sometimes frankly overlooked ideal of treating each other's as brothers and sisters rather than as competitors or rivals or frankly even as equals because as you know if you have them and i believe you do uh, to the group the degree you have a sister or a brother you know that he or she is older or younger than you are stronger or weaker than you are more talented or less talented than you are depending upon this the subject that is to say when we talk about brothers and sisters we're not equal we shouldn't be how can we be we weren't born at the same time even twins are slightly different I have grandchildren, two of them, and they are twins, but they're utterly different, even though they were only born minutes apart. No matter about that, uh, we recognize when we're treating brothers and sisters, we're talking about this third ideal of brotherhood, sisterhood, rather than other ideals which belong in other spheres of our life. So for me, that is perhaps one of the most important aspects of Rudolf Steiner's work in modern society, A, to make sense of it, and B, to give us some idea of how we can make it better, to make it healthier. That was so perfect. Thank you so much for that perspective. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. This is such an informative conversation. So thank you. My pleasure, Ashley. Great to talk with you as a fellow Waldorf graduate. Thank you so much for listening in, everybody. As a reminder, you can find additional show notes for this episode, including much more about our guest, Dr. Douglas Gerwin, and his work at waldorfy.com forward slash roadmap for anthroposophy. I just wanted to quickly remind you of how you can support Waldorfy. You can go to wherever you get your podcasts and write a positive review. Apple Podcasts is a great place to do this. You can then subscribe to the Waldorfy podcast. You can do this wherever you get your podcasts or at waldorfy.com. There are links all over directing you to where you can subscribe. You can also share Waldorfy on social media and tell all your friends and family about the show. And I would so love for you to check out our Patreon page. Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. The Waldorfy podcast is a free resource for parents and those interested in Waldorf education and anthroposophy, but free doesn't pay the bills. It would mean so much to me if you would consider becoming a supporter. If you want to learn more about how you can support the podcast on Patreon, please visit waldorfy.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I cannot begin to express to you how much I really appreciate all of your support of the podcast. Again, special thanks to Waldorfy podcast supporter Palumba. As a reminder, you can check them out at palumba.com. As always, I so appreciate your feedback on this episode. You can always reach me at info.waldorfy at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show notes page for this episode. Again, the show notes page for this episode can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash roadmap for anthroposophy. And if you're new to anthroposophy, you're probably going to want to know how that's spelt. And it's A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-S-O-P-A. H-Y. 
I would so love to connect with you on social media. I'm at B Waldorfy. That's B-E Waldorfy on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Thanks again for listening in, everybody. Be well.